If not, I invite you to turn with me to the seventh chapter of the book of Judges. The Old Testament book of Judges, seventh chapter. Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. We'll be reading from the seventh chapter of the seventh book of the Bible. I have not preached from this text since June 5th of 2011. At that point, I was uh, newlywed in uh, every sense of the word. I'd only been married for about a week, and uh, we were visiting that Sunday morning uh, at the mission uh, that Brother uh, Rick Jones and Sister Linda uh, were at, and um, enjoyed preaching and being with them down there. And uh, This is a wonderful account in the Scriptures, and uh, one that holds a special place in my heart as a result of that, but um, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think I've preached from this text since then, and uh, as I was returned to it in my studies, it blessed my heart, and uh, I pray that it will bless you as well. Um, I do intend to read the entirety um, of this seventh chapter, and I want to encourage you to follow along with me and uh, stick with me as we read through it. Um, I will try to pause from time to time to uh, summarize or to catch us up on what's going on, um, but it should be a well-known story, I think, to many of you as we read here in the seventh chapter of the book of Judges on the account of Gideon and his army as they went up against the Midianites. Judges chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, says, Then Jerubbabel, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give, to the, Midian, to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. Now therefore go to the people and proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. And they, there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. So I want you to get in mind what's happening here is that there's the army of Gideon, and there's about thirty-two thousand of them, and they are encamped opposite, about five miles away from the army of the Midianites. Now I want you to know, we'll read here in a moment about the, the size of the army of the Midianites, but they were many. In fact, at one point it's going to say it was like the grasshoppers in the field. How many of the armies there were of these Midianites. And meanwhile, you have an army of 32,000 that pales in comparison to the army of the Midianites. Yet God looks and He examines that army and He tells Gideon, He says, this army is too great. He says, if I give the Midianites into their hands at this capacity of the 32,000 troops in the army of Gideon, if I give to Israel the, the, the hand of the Midianites unto them, they will vaunt themselves up. They will be puffed up and think that it's because of their own strength that they have defeated the Midianites. And so the Lord tells Gideon, he says, we need to, to, to pare this down a little bit. We need to get to a, a group that I can use here. And so he tells them to stand before the people and to stand before those 32,000 and to tell them if they are afraid, if they are scared, to go home. And so that's exactly what Gideon does. He gets up in front of the army and he says, if you're scared, if you're afraid of this battle, I want you to know this is your opportunity to leave. And can you imagine what Gideon thought when as he stood before the people, more than two-thirds of the army left and went home? 
You'd be feeling pretty discouraged, wouldn't you? If I said right now, if you don't want to be here, get up and leave, and two-thirds of you left, well, I'd be feeling pretty discouraged. I'd think, well, my goodness, all these people, only a third of them wanted to be here. That's what Gideon was faced with. And so of the 32,000, two-thirds of them leave, 22,000 leave, and only 10,000 are left. Now, surely Gideon is probably thinking, well, you know, there's been a bunch leave, but you know, there's still a number here, and maybe this will be what we go up to war against the Midianites with. And so the Lord looks and He examines once again these 10,000 in verse 4. He says, The Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. He said, bring them down into the water, and I will try them, I will test them uh, for thee there. And it shall be of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomever I say unto thee, thou shalt not go with thee, the same shall not go. So the Lord is examined, and he said, listen, this group of 10,000, it's still too much. He says, we need to pare this thing down a little bit more. We need to purge out those that, that are not of the type or not of the ones that I desire to go to war in my name. And he says, so bring them down to the water and I will try them there. I will test them there for you that you will know who is to go with you and who is to not go with you. So verse 5, he says, So he brought down the people unto the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that bows down upon his knees to drink. And, none, and the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped, Will I save you and deliver the Midianites into thine hand and let all the other people go every man unto his place? So the people took victuals in their hands and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent and retained those 300 men and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. Gideon's army has been cut from 32,000 to 300. The 300 men that were selected were those that lapped up the water as a dog would lappeth. Those that bowed down upon their knees and uh, took great uh, care and, and, and rest in terms of what they were doing. Those are the ones that were sent home. Some 9,700 that did that, they were sent home. While these other 300 were the ones that God had chose for the battle. That God had identified, that had proved themselves in the test as being the 300 that would go to battle with the Midianites. But did you catch what it said in verse 8? It said that they, the people, those 300, took victuals in their hands, that's the things that they would be their provisions, and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, into his tent. And so you have an army of 300 that is armed with provisions, just the food and the supplies that they could carry, and a trumpet. Now I want to ask you, how good is an army of 300 against an army of many thousands, such that they are like grasshoppers in a field, and how much so would an army of 300 be armed only with the supplies that they could carry in their hands and a trumpet? Gideon's feeling pretty nervous. And you would be too. If you had been called to lead God's army, that was 32,000 and it was at least something to go to war with. And now it's been cut down to 300 men carrying some supplies and some trumpets. 
And behold, the Midianites were in the valley before them, and they were scared. Now Gideon was afraid of what lied ahead of him. Verse 9, it says, And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, said unto Gideon, Arise, get thee down into the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Phura, thy servant, down to the host. And thou shalt hear what they say, and afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down into the host. Then went he down with Phura, his servant, unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. Did you catch that? The Lord said unto Gideon, said, You're prepared now to go up against the battle. He said, But if you're afraid, go down there, and I will encourage you by the things that you will hear when you see the army. And Gideon went. Gideon was fearful. He was afraid for the battle that was before him. Yet God had told him, if you go down there, Gideon was this type of his own spy. He went down with his servant to witness and to spy on the Midianites that were in the valley. Let's listen to what he found when he went down there to spy. Verse 12, it says, The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. That's how big this army is of the Midianites. It says, And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. So I want you to get a picture of this in your mind. Gideon and Phura, they're kind of on the outside of the camp, but they're within earshot now of, uh, of two members, two soldiers in the Midianite army as they're talking to each other. And the one begins to talk to the other and says, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came down into a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. Now that's kind of a strange dream to dream, but you probably dream strange dreams sometimes. And the dream that was told that Gideon here in earshot that the Lord had set in his sovereignty for Gideon to hear was that there would be a barley bread that would come into this tent. And think about a, a cake of barley bread, just a, probably as similar as we could try to think about it to a, a tumbleweed, would come into the camps of the Midianites and would topple their tents. And so that would sound far out, except for the one who answered back, this interpreter of this dream as it would be, said unto his fellow soldier, and he said, this can only be the sword of Gideon. And Gideon has heard all these things, him there spying with Pharaoh. And it was so, in verse 15, when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped. And he returned into the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Midian. Isn't that wonderful? The battle hadn't even happened. Yet Gideon is so secured by it based on what the Lord had shown him that he went back to his 300 strong army and he said, Arise! The victory has already been won. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put a trumpet in every man's hand and empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. An army of 300 is going to battle with a trumpet and some pitchers and a torch. Down in the picture. Now you look at that and you'd say, they don't stand a chance. Listen to what God did. Verse 17. 
And he said unto them, Look on me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall you do. When I blow with a trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow you the trumpets also on every side of the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon, the hundred men that were with him, came into the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle of the watch. And they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets, and they break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets, and they break the pitchers, and held the lamps in their left hands, and the trumpets in their right hands, to blow with all. And they cried, The sword of the Lord, and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place around the camp, and all the hosts ran, and they cried, and they fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow even throughout all the host and the host fled to Belshita and Zarata and to the border of Abomal I should slow down. Abimelech unto Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of all of Manasseh and pursued after the Midianites. Gideon and his army had defeated the Midianites, and they never lifted a sword. All they did was blow their trumpets, break their pitchers, and hold in their left hands their torches. And the people that were gathered around there in the middle of the camp, those armies of the Midianites, they became so scared that they began to run, and there was chaos that ensued, so much so that they began to slay each other with their own swords. And so much so then they began to run. They ran out to this place and to that place. And the Midianites, or excuse me, Gideon was able to come behind them and to chase after them. And we can read on here the closing two verses. You'll see what all took place as a result of the victory. But there's a point here that I want us to see. First, I want you to see the nature of what God was doing with these armies of Gideon. He saw that they were too great. He knew that there was a problem, a heart problem, that the people suffered from, that if those 32,000 rose up against the Midianites and God gave them the victory, that they would puff themselves up in their own pride, saying, look what we were able to accomplish by our own hand. God knew the pride in man's heart. He knew the pride in the armies of Gideon. And He said unto them, this people is too great. And so when he began to purge them and began to parse them down, the purpose of doing so was that Israel would find humbleness and humility in the sight of God. I preached last week and and talked about how, or two weeks ago, about how before we can cast our cares upon the Lord, we must come to Him humbly. We must be humbled before the Lord before we are able to cast our cares upon Him. And we must also come humbly before the Lord before we would find victory by His hand. The Lord desires to bring victory to His people. He has proved it again and again and again. But when we are vaulted and we puff ourselves up as though we are capable of achieving the victories for ourselves, God will look just as He looked at Gideon's army and He said there is something here that must be purged. And he looked at Gideon's arm and he said, it is too great. He said, I must cut this thing down lest they would be vaunted and puff themselves up. So the first thing that he looked for in these armies of Gideon was their courage. He said, of these 32,000, whoever is afraid to go, whoever is fearful, send him home. And there remained only 10,000. I want to say something about being courageous. 
There is a value that I desire to instill in my children. That value of courage. That value of bravery. In fact, just this week, just on Thursday, my youngest, Ellie, we had to take her to have some x-rays done. And as a three-year-old would do in that situation, she was very afraid. And I was trying to encourage her that she would take courage regarding what was doing and probably what you've done before. You're trying to make light of those things and show that it's just a camera and all those ways to try to reason with someone about why they should not be afraid. But if you're like me, you have faced moments where the only reasonable thing to do was to be afraid. You have faced situations in life that were too great for you. You have faced enemies. You have faced causes that are the right causes to be afraid for. You have found that there has been harm threatened against you and you have been fearful. And that is the only reasonable thing to do in those moments is to be afraid. I want to think for a moment, what constitutes a courageous person? Have you ever met someone who is courageous? Who you would say is very brave? I want you to know something about courageous people. They are much like humble people. You never find a humble person that would go around talking about how humble they are. In fact, if they were to go around talking about how humble they are, it would be proof positive that they're not humble at all. And likewise, someone who goes around saying that they are very brave and very courageous oftentimes is not brave nor courageous at all. In fact, I like what Webster said about it. He said that courage that grows from constitution, courage that grows from the, the natural makeup of a person, often forsakes them when they have occasion for it. Meaning that you might have this value in you that says to be courageous, but when it is required that you be courageous, based on that value alone, you will find it difficult to drum up that courage. If you're only relying upon yourself for your courage, when moments require that bravery, you'll find it sorely lacking. But Webster went on, he said, Courage which arises from a sense of duty acts in a uniform manner. What's that mean? That when your courage is linked to the purpose for which you are being courageous, it will be there constantly and continuously. I don't think I truly understood what that meant until I became a husband and became a father. And suddenly those moments where at once I would have been very afraid, I have found courage in them. Why? Because I am held by my duty to my wife and to my children to be courageous in moments where I don't want to be. Brother Corey can tell you a great story. When he and I used to live together back in college, how I got very afraid one night when I woke up to find the door wide open. He can tell it better than I can, but you'll probably find some humor in it. I want you to know since then I've had moments where I've been threatened in the middle of the night or so it would seem, and I didn't bat an eye in fear over those situations. What happened from the time I was 20 to the time that I was 35? It was When I was 20, I probably would have told you I was very brave and very courageous, but when the rubber hit the road, I was afraid. Yet now that I am older and I have a duty of responsibility to my household, at the age of 35, when that same threat calls, behold, I have found myself to be more courageous, not because of anything that constitutes me as a man, but because of the duty to which I am called. And you might be saying, Derek, what does that matter about anything? Those 22,000 people that left, 
I suppose that they were probably very good men, very good soldiers in that army. And they went away because they were afraid. And I suppose those 10,000 that left, they stood and they said, well, you know what? I am very courageous. I mean, they were probably a bunch of guys like me when I was 20 that said, you better believe I'm courageous. You know, if somebody walks in here, they're going to, you know, they're going to limp out. You know, all those things that guys will say when they're with their buddies about how brave and strong and courageous they are. But when those 10,000 were brought to the water's edge, God had called out that He would be looking and examining them about how they took up that water. And you might say, well, Derek, what's it matter about how this army came down to this river to drink? What's it matter about how they drank from it? Some knelt down on their knees and they took rest and they drank and others got down and they laughed like a dog. What does that matter? There were some that they were there for the purpose of their rest, for reason of their provision, that they might take and drink water. And there were others that were there as they were underneath the command of their general Gideon. And they were there to drink but they knew that they were a part of a battle that they were duty-bound to fight. And so they weren't there for their relaxation and leisure to take and to drink until it was time to go. They came and they drank and they drank quickly because they were about the business of the battle that was at hand. Their duty had called them not to respect of their own needs, but instead to take of respect for the battle that was at hand. Do you see the difference in that courage? They were looking to the duty to which they were held, not to their own needs and their own desire for rest and their own desire for the provision of water. And the Lord said, it's these 300 that you take with you. These 9,700 you send back. Yes, they stood and they said that they were courageous, but it is evidenced by their action that they are not ready for the battle. I want to ask you, not just are you brave or are you courageous, but why? Why are you brave? Why are you courageous? And then accompanying that why, are you then also ready for the battle? When Moses was coming up to his time to die, God had let him know that his time was coming to an end and that he would not be crossing over into the promised land and that there was a successor who had been chosen in Joshua. And so Moses had called Joshua unto him. And I'm just going to read a couple of verses from the book of Deuteronomy. In verse 7 it says, Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, he said, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Read on in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. He says, Have not I commanded you, this is the Lord talking to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 
Moses had called Joshua and he said, I want you to take heart and I want you to take a great courage. Why? Because what you are going to be doing is leading the people into that promised land that for these last 40 years we have been journeying to find. And you, Joshua, are going to be the one to take them over the Jordan into this promised land. And you then, seeing that you have received this charge and this responsibility, that you would go before them. Go be strong and be courageous but look to the one who goes ahead of you. Moses did not look to Joshua and say, great, take great courage in yourself and take great strength in yourself. He said, but look to the one who goes ahead of you. He said, he is the one that will be with you and will not fail you nor forsake you, so do not fear, neither be dismayed. Moses was linking Joshua's courage not to who Joshua was and that he had received some special blessing and having received this honor of being the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. No, he said, look to the one who goes before you. Listen to what Joshua told the people. Joshua, likewise, he knew his time was nearing an end. Joshua chapter 23, verse 6. He says, be therefore very courageous. This is Joshua talking to the people. Be therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that you turn not aside therefrom to the right hand or to the left, that you come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done unto this day. So we have this encouragement now that's not just been handed down from Moses to Joshua, but Joshua now to all the people of Israel to be courageous. And that their courage be linked to their faithfulness in the Word of the Lord. And I want to emphasize this to you. Courage grows in faith. I'm going to say that again. Courage grows in faith. You will not be courageous when it comes to stand on the principles of the Word of the Lord if you have not first tasted and grown in His faithfulness. There are going to be times where required of you will be to stand and to look stronghold into fearful, frightening things that would otherwise dismay you, whether it be for the cause of your children, for the cause of your family, for the cause of the church. That you would stand and that you would look stronghold into and look into and you would say, there is only reason here to fear or to be dismayed. And if you are leaning only upon your own self, that, that fearfulness, that terror, that dismay that will grab a hold of you, it will cause you to crumble before that fearful thing. But, if your courage is linked to the faithfulness of the Lord, you will stand to it. You will not lean on upon your own understanding as we see the proverb writer exhorting us, but instead your trust in the Lord will allow you to stand strong against that which would otherwise cause you to be dismayed and be very troubled. Why, why does this matter? Why, why does it matter, this need for courage? So I've been examining what is impacting us in the state, you've heard me use this expression before, of churchianity today. And I look at the state of 
our culture here in this present era. I think what is affecting so much this present culture is that the church does not have as much involvement and as much impact on the culture as it should. And then I look at the church and I say, why does the church not have as much of an impact on the culture as it should and as it used to? And I look and I examine the church and what I see is that the church has become so distracted by worldly things that we have no uh, time, we have no availability, we have no hope or reason within us to involve ourselves in these battles that are greater than us. Two weeks ago, I preached about casting our cares upon the Lord. And I'll just be honest with you, when I examine the state, not just of, of who we are here at Faith Church, but of all the Lord's churches, it's evident that we don't do that. You say, well, Derek, how's that so? Because we spend so much time worried and bogged down with the things of this life that we do not have the ability or capacity to engage ourselves in the affairs of the cause of Christ. We can't have a hope to be courageous in these battles because our courage is being sucked away from us because of all these other cares and weights that are besetting us. Turn with me to the book of Jude. I wasn't planning to go here. That little epistle of Jude. says, Jew, the servant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Did you catch what Jude was writing He said, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, Jude had a purpose that he had hoped to write to the saints of God. He wanted to write to them about salvation, to exhort them and to encourage them. He said, But when I sat down to write these things to you, I found instead that it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered for the saints. Jude saw in this uh, time of the church, the early church was being persecuted. He wanted to write and to encourage them regarding the common salvation that they now shared in. And instead, he found it necessary to write to them, to exhort them, to earnestly contend for what? To contend for the faith. Our courage that would call us to contend for the faith has been so diminished because we are so busy contending for everything else. And I don't just mean in our personal lives, but I even mean in in the church. We busy ourselves contending with what songs we should sing, 
contending ourselves with, with the things that we should do or should not do, how we should uh, uh, change things or not change things, how we should uh, do things in the back or do things in the front. We contend about all these issues that ultimately are not the purpose for which we've been called. In our individual's lives, we're contending with all the demands and the affairs that the world would have on us. And meanwhile, we are called to contend and to earnestly contend for the faith. You see, our courage is being drawn away and Satan has been so... so. I don't want to word this. He has been so sly in how he has tripped us up in this. Because not only has he distracted us and pulled away our time, not only has he distracted us and pulled away our peace and pulled away our joys as we've been studying in our small groups, but he has also now pulled away our courage. Where have the brave soldiers of God gone? I've seen them before. I've seen them ready to fight. And I don't mean fight in a physical sense, but I've seen them ready to fight the spiritual battles that God has called us to fight. And they would fight them bitterly. They would fight them unto the point of exhaustion. They would fight them unto the death. Why? Because they knew that they were fighting for a cause that was far greater. These 300 men of Gideon, they didn't know the battle plan. Do you know that? They weren't the ones that got to go down and hear of the dream and its interpretation. But they were ready for the battle. I ask you, are you ready for this battle? Here's the great thing about courage. Philippians chapter 1 says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out, this is Paul writing, for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul's writing, and he, you know how he's writing to the Philippians there, and he's, he's in jail at the time of his writing. And he's writing to them, and he's saying, I want you to know that my circumstances, although they've been hard and trying on me, they've been for the good of the gospel. So he says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, the whole palace, and to everyone else. Paul's been in prison, but he's been busy sharing the gospel with everybody. He's been telling everyone that would listen, all the guards, all the people in the palace, he's been telling them about the Lord. He says, it's been a good thing that I found myself here in prison. i got to tell you, I wouldn't be like that probably. And neither would you. You'd be in prison saying, woe is me. How am I going to get out of here? waiting for that phone, one phone call you have for somebody to bail you out. And Paul's in prison he's saying, it's been for the progress of the Gospel. He says, verse 14, "...and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear." He says, not only so have I had great opportunities here in this prison cell, but because of what others have seen in me, they now too have taken courage to speak the Gospel. What's he saying? He's saying that courage is contagious. And it is, isn't it? I don't know if you've seen a bunch of little boys playing, but they'll show you how contagious courage is. Because that one little boy will get that wild idea to jump off the house and before long, you'll see all those little boys running to jump off the house. Why? Because peer pressure is a real thing. And it breeds courage sometimes. Courage has this contagion effect. That when one stands courageous against evil in our day, another one will have that same courage sparked within them. And they will stand beside them. And before long, where two have been standing courageous, 
there will be three, and three will become four, and so on. Isn't that wonderful? How courage becomes contagious. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is cool. We've been reading and studying about the missions of Paul, the missions and journeys of Paul in the book of Acts during Sunday school. This is towards the later end. Paul's about ready to come into Rome, and he's kind of dealing with his last missionary trips before he ultimately gets to Rome. And he has this, uh, this, uh, this uh, issue as he's been standing before uh, Ananias, and, and he's been having all this trouble and difficulty. But then in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, it says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also of Rome. <laughs> we know how Paul had every reason to be afraid time and time again. And here he is standing, and surely he's thinking, This is it. I have gotten out of these situations time and time again, but this is the end. This is it. I, I, I've tried and I've used every opportunity that I've had to both my, my, my heritage and, and, and who I am. I, I've tried all these things to, to get out of these situations that I've found myself in again and again. And he's probably thinking this, this is it. But the night following, he's asleep. And the Lord comes to him and he says, be of good cheer. I want you to know, this word here, be of good cheer, cheer, it is never found interpreted anywhere in the King James Bible to be the word courage. You won't find it. But, if you look at Young's, uh, de- excuse me, if you look at Strong's definition here for this word, be of good cheer, you will find that it also means be of good courage. He, the Lord came unto Paul and he said, don't be afraid. Don't be bewildered about what will befall you here, for you must also testify of me in Rome. He was saying, Paul, I have more work for you still to do. So don't be disheartened. Don't be discouraged. But instead, take of good cheer. Have any of you ever felt like the battle's over for you? Where you just feel like it's all over? You feel defeated. Before the battle's even started, you feel a sense of defeat. I've been there, and I'm sure you have too. But every once in a while, the Lord will come to you and He'll say, be of good cheer. I know you feel defeated right now, but there is work that is left to do. The Lord gives us courage for the purposes that He has called us to do. And so if you know that the Lord has called you to do something, my friend, don't be afraid about whether or not you will have the ability to do it. For the Lord will give you the courage to accomplish the purpose for which He has called you to. I just want you to know, there is no reason that I would stand before you people week after week on my own. I would just get bewildered by that. But there is a courage that is instilled in me, not of anything of who I am, but of the purpose of the duty for which I have been called to stand and to testify of who the Lord is and of His Scriptures. Mark 15, verse 43 says, listen to this. I, this, this. I think I lost this before, before I realized this. You know, we live in a day and age that calls for political courage, don't we? I mean, if you're like me, you can't hardly talk about the things that we stand for and believe as, as conservative Christians anymore without being ridiculed, without being mocked, without jobs being at risk, and all these sorts of things. I think I had missed what it took for Joseph of Arimathea to ask for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, he was a very respected man. He was one who had esteem and position there amongst the people. 
And yet for him as a follower of Christ and now publicly declare that and asking for the body of Christ that he may bury him, it put something on the line that required courage of him. Mark 15, verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage. And he went in before Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. I love how the NASB 95 deals with that text. It says that he gathered up courage. It was that he couldn't find it on his own. Can't you picture him? I don't know. Some of you may have saw that video of Michael a couple of weeks ago when when he asked his his girlfriend to go to homecoming with him. Did you guys see that? Michael was trying to look all nonchalant about it. But I don't know if you've probably ever seen that boy outside of a girl's house before he asked her to go to homecoming. He's doing one of these numbers right here, pacing. You know what he's doing in those moments, don't you? He's gathering up courage, right? He's trying to pick up all the courage that he can find, all of that bravery that he can find to get up the nerve to do what he is scared to death to do. That's what I picture Joseph of Arimathea doing here, and I, I pray that I'm not dealing too lightly here with the text. But can't you just picture him trying to gather up that courage, this member of the Sanhedrin, knowing it might cost him everything to go before Pilate to beg for the body of Jesus, that he might bury him in a borrowed tomb. But do you not know that before this appointed time, it had already been prophesied of how Jesus would be buried? Yet here in the heat of the moment, Joseph, just like me and you, was still gathering up his courage to do it. I know that being courageous, sometimes it, it fails us. We just can't find it. We can't grab a hold of it. But we have reason to be of good cheer. For the Lord is with us. And He goes before us. We have no reason to be discouraged, neither to be dismayed. For the One who goes before us, He is with us and will never fail us. Let me close with this. Psalm 27, verse 1-3. through A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Who shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and they fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. I ask you today, where does your confidence come from you see confidence is another word for courageous isn't it why was it that Daniel was so courageous and confident when he entered into the lion's den why did Hananiah Meshach and Azariah more often referred to as Shadrach Meshach and Abednego why were they so confident that the Lord could save them from the fiery furnace, but even if He didn't trust the Lord had good for them in mind, why were they confident? I want to read one final verse to you. It's the very middle verse of the Bible. Psalm 118 and verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to put your refuge, your strength, your courage your confidence in the Lord than it is to put it in man, even in yourself. So I want to call you today 
Faith Church, I want to call you today, Christian, to courage, to bravery, to slay the demons of your life, not by your own hand, but by the hand of the Lord, that you might stand ready for the battle that awaits you. There's a wonderful verse found in the First Timothy, I believe it is, where Paul is, is exhorting young Timothy and he is writing him about being entangled with the affairs of life. And he says, no warrior going to battle entangles himself with the affairs of life. Brother Jerry Miller preached a wonderful sermon from this verse down at Old Union several years back. I encourage you to go out there and find that called Entangled Preachers. But listen, not only does that apply that preachers shouldn't be entangled with the affairs of this world that keeps them from being courageous, but all of God's people must be free from all the cares and concerns and the things that grab a hold of us and suck our courage away, that we might find and gather up that same courage that Joseph did, even in things that might cost us everything that the Lord has appointed and called us to do. I don't know about you, but of those 32,000 people that stood before Gideon, I'd rather be found like the 300 than I would be found like the 28,700. That's not right. 31,700. I'm a preacher, not a mathematician. But let us find good courage today, Christian. I know that what awaits us sometimes is found very difficult, but I trust that the Lord can deliver us all the battles that stand against us. Thank you for listening to me today. Something on your heart. Something the Lord wants you to say or do.